Today and over the next several months, we are in for a great time, and uh, I want to make the most of that time, so I want to turn in your Bible to Romans 1, or Revelation 1. Now, we uh, entitled this series, A, a Tour Through the Book of Revelation, and uh, as you may, if you've been on a tour, you may have uh, identified maybe some of the things that I have intended by naming it that, uh, which is that on a tour, you see uh, most of the beautiful places, and you certainly visit the things you're supposed to visit. What we probably won't do in this study tonight, but uh, as we go along in our time together uh, in the years to come, we will cross-reference this book with the book of Daniel. I'd like to follow this study up with one in Daniel. And uh, so we will, what I'd really like to do, and this is really my desire, is to make this very much like your reading uh, at home. So that as you approach the book, maybe in segments that you perhaps would bite off, and identifying things that would be important as you study a book, and particularly the book of Revelation, things that you would probably jot down, things that you would, in your mind, say, okay, I understand this, because I really want to put to work some of the things we talked about in our previous study, how to get the most out of God's Word. So we will not look at every single specific tiny detail, although there will be some places where if it's important uh, as it relates to the topic and it's important to dig really, really deeply in and, and see that answer, we will do that. But what I want to do really is get you acquainted with the language of the book, with the topic of the book, with some of the chronology of the book and where it fits and what we understand from the Word of God uh, this is supposed to be placed. And so that's my desire. And so uh, you can tell me at the end whether we actually accomplished that goal or not or whether we went too deep or didn't go deep enough. But you'll find it'll vary a little bit from the morning, where I've really identified that as a verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans, uh, and then identified sections of it which will really break it down word for word, and, uh, and I wanted to do that in the morning. But in the evening, we're going to do a little bit differently, so you perhaps notice as we go through, uh, the most obvious one will be that we'll cover more verses in one time together, all right? More than just two or the average of three, which we do in the morning, all right? So, uh, no New Testament book, as we look at this one, has been... Uh, has more interpretive challenges than this book. Uh, it has tremendous imagery. It has uh, vivid symbolism. And I'm going to just spend a brief moment on this because I don't think it's hugely important except for the last one, as you'll see in just a moment. But there's really been four main interpretive approaches in academic circles, and uh, there are some variances uh, to this. But this, this will summarize them for you, uh, just a general representation as people have looked at the book of Revelation. Now, the first one, and these are in not in order of importance, as you'll see in just a minute, uh, but just in just a random order, uh, perhaps order of ones that are embraced uh, uh, apart from the true one. But the preterist view of the book of Revelation, which uh, would say that Revelation is a description of first century events in the Roman Empire. And all the prophetic portions uh, are already fulfilled. And this view would also include the, the gospel portions of Ma- uh, Mark 20. Uh, Mark 24, uh, or Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. So, Frederick's view would include all those prophetic portions. They would say that, in general, this is a description of first century events in the Roman Empire. Now, there are some problems with that view, um, and I won't name all of them, but I'll name the major ones. Uh, it is inconsistent with the book's own claim to be prophecy. All right? Romans chapter 1, verse 3, or Revelation 1, verse 3, Revelation 22, verse 7 and 10, and 18, and verse 19, all say that it is prophecy. And so that would be inconsistent with what the book actually claims in itself. Uh, Secondly, it is not possible to see all the events in Revelation already fulfilled. 
that requires huge amounts of stretching and twisting and turning and excluding in order to say that uh, they're already been fulfilled. It is also inconsistent with the gospel accounts of the second coming of Christ. And the second coming of Christ obviously did not occur in the first century. All right, so there's many more problems. And of course, as you know, as we finished our study, uh, that would ignore a literal grammatical historical approach to reading the Bible, that the Bible says plainly uh, what it means. And so uh, Preterist view then would ignore all of that and just superimpose on that first century events of the Roman Empire. Secondly, a second view, as a historicist view, historicist view would say that Revelation is a description of church history from the apostles to the present. So basically it's telling by symbolism, uh, representing the destruction of Rome and the rise of the Catholic Church and world wars and natural disasters and all those things. So that view would say that it is uh, just a history of the church from the apostles to the present. There are many problems with that view, of course. Uh, literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of the Bible is the main one. Uh, it doesn't embrace that, but also many conflicting interpretations of the actual historic events contained in the book of Revelation. You talk to three different people who embrace this, and three different people will tell you three different things that that thing represents in the history from uh, the apostles to the present. That This view also removes any meaning for the ones to whom the book was originally written. Uh, so it just kind of erases all that and makes the book meaningless to the ones who were supposed to receive it. And thirdly, it disregards the time limitations placed in the book governing the unfolding of the events. And uh, Revelation 11, verse 2, Revelation 12, 6 through 14, Revelation 13, verse 5, tell us there are time constraints. Once it begins, it's going to end in a certain amount of time. And of course, that would ignore all of that. Okay. Third uh, view in academic circles, idealist view. Uh, Revelation is symbolic then in this view of the struggle between good and evil that's gone on from the beginning of time. So it's just a big book of stories that we can apply in general uh, to uh, our situation. So there would be problems with that. No historical setting, no predictive prophecy. Of course, it just ignored literal, grammatical, historical approach. It ignores the stated purpose of the book. And then it just becomes a collection of stories that teach spiritual truth. All right? So... Uh, You've got a preterist, you've got historicist, you've got idealist, and then you have futurist. A futurist view would say that the events recorded in chapters 6 through 22 in Revelation are yet future still. And they literally and sometimes through symbolism represent actual people, actual events yet to appear. It lines up, uh, this view lines up with the stated purpose of the book that it is predictive prophecy and it lines up with a grammatical historical approach to the book and it's consistent with the rest of scripture and with the great themes of scripture and so uh, that is the view that I would teach and would embrace and would believe to be true and uh, most uh, carefully analyzed it as the biblical view the problems of course with that are for the world and for the unsaved uh, with that view because that means that uh, you're going to have to have faith and uh, there is a day of reckoning coming. And so those are the only problems and they're only with those who are non-believers. So um, a literal view, or a literal approach, a historic approach, a grammatical approach, uh, an integration and practical approach are the ways that we approach Scripture. That's the way that we'll approach the book of Revelation. I think that it requires the least amount of gymnastics with uh, different Scriptures in other parts of the Bible to understand it that way. So our purpose then is to tour through this marvelous book 
And uh, I'd like you to share your story. It's been around a while, but I still think that it uh, provides the point, I think, that's necessary. There once was a spider who lived in a cornfield. He was a big spider, and he'd spun a beautiful web between the corn stalks. And he got fat, eating all the bugs that would get caught in his web. And he liked his home, and he planned to stay there all the rest of his life. Well, one day, the spider caught a little bug in his web, and just as the spider was about to eat him, the bug said, If you let me go, I'll tell you something important, and it's going to save your life. The spider paused for a moment and listened because he was amused. The bug went on, you better get out of this cornfield. The harvest is coming, the bug said. The spider smiled and said, uh, what's the harvest that you're talking about? I think you're just telling me a story. The little bug went on, oh no, it's true. The owner of this field is coming to harvest it soon. All the stocks will be knocked down and the corn will be gathered up and you will be killed by a giant machine if you stay here. Spider said, I don't believe in harvests and giant machines that knock down corn stalks. How can you prove this? Little bug continued, just look at the corn. See how it's planted in rows? Proves the field was planted by someone. Spider laughed and mockingly said, this field has evolved. It has nothing to do with the creator. Corn always grows this way. Bug went on to explain, oh no, this field belongs to the owner who planted it and the harvest is coming soon. Spider grinned and said to the little bug, I don't believe you. And the spider ate him for lunch. A few days later, the spider was laughing about the story the little bug had told him and he thought to himself, the harvest, what a silly idea. I've lived here all of my life and nothing's ever disturbed me. I've been here since these corn stalks were just a foot off the ground and I'll be here for the rest of my life because nothing is ever going to change in this field. Life is good and I have it made. The next day was a beautiful sunny day in the cornfield. The sky above was clear and there were no wind at all. And that afternoon as the spider was about to take a nap, he noticed some thick dusty clouds moving towards him and he could hear the roar of a great engine and he said to himself, I wonder what that could be. 2 Peter 3, verse 3 and 4 says, In the last days mockers will come, following their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? The Lord is not slow, verse 9, concerning his promise, as some count slowness, but patient toward you, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We just say as we dig into this book, that there's no book in Scripture that is going to reveal the glory of God and of Christ in any more splendor than this book will. And yet there's no book that's been more misunderstood and misinterpreted and neglected than this book has. In chapter 22 and verse 10, it says, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. If there's one thing that God wants in regard to this book, it's that we know what it teaches. Seal it not, he said. Don't seal it up. The book begins with a blessing. Chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed is he that reads this book, and it ends with a blessing in chapter 22, verse 7. Blessed is he that keeps the words of this prophecy. It's the only book in the Bible that begins and ends with a promise of blessing to the one who reads it. 
We're told to understand it. We're told because the time is near. And that basically means in chapter 22 and verse 10 that what's said here is the next event on God's messianic timetable. Key to the book is found in chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to dive right into that and go from there. So I'd like you to look there, if you would. Chapter 1 and verse 1. First five words. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's where we get our English word for apocalypse. It simply means the unveiling or the revealing or the uncovering of the truth about Jesus Christ, making him clear. That's really the purpose of the book. That is the theme for us and the theme for the book. Make Jesus clear. Until now, not known. We're going to learn things about Jesus Christ that would not be known if it were not for this book. Read on chapter 1, verse 1. Which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. In other words, this is a glimpse of what? Of the future, right? And that's what that language means. Something is going to take place soon. And we get a drop in on God's unveiling of things that he's prepared for Christ in the future. In the Gospels, remember, he prepared for Christ's humility. But in Revelation, he's prepared for Christ's power and glory. And that's a marvelous thing to think about. The near future. Let's read on. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. God wanted to reveal Jesus Christ in his full glory. And that's a future reality. He sent the message about this through an angel to John. Look at verse 2. Who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Verse 1 says God sets out to reveal you should underline that. That's what the purpose of the book is. He set out to reveal. Verse 2 says, John takes responsibility to write down the revelation. So he's going to write it down. He's going to reveal it. He's going to write it down. You can underline that. Verse 3, it says, Blessed is the one who reads. You should underline that. The one who hears and who keeps or takes to heart. Underline that. The things that are written in it for the time is near. You can underline that. Now, this is not so much related to time itself, although it is a specific time, but as, as well related to a sequence of events, as we said. In other words, it's the next thing on God's calendar of messianic events. John Mulvard, well-known commentator on Revelation, has said this, which I copied down many years ago. I love, he says, people don't look at prophecy, I quote, as surely as they look at history, but remember, he says, God's history, as it relates to Christ, was once Prophecy. I love that. That's sweet, isn't it? God's history as it relates to Christ was once prophecy. The same books that talk about his first coming also talk about his second. And so that's a neat thing to uh, remember. And as we think about that, it changes our perspective a little bit and gives us renewed hope uh, as we read through uh, these books. It's a revelation then of Jesus Christ, okay? And it's been revealed in full second coming glory. That's what's going to happen. It was previewed a little bit, I think you remember, during the, his first coming on the Mount of Transfiguration when he showed them a glimpse of uh, his second coming glory. Now look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor. And we get a formal introduction here. Okay, you can see the book is, is moving towards that. John is writing the book specifically to be sent to the churches of Asia Minor. That would be modern-day Turkey. There were seven actual churches. They're listed for us in chapter 2 and chapter 3, and we're going to look at them individually as we get there. They were actually actual congregations, and we'll see the application as we go through. They are repeated over and over again throughout the course of church history, but these are seven churches that were actually addressed 
by John. And so they were the initial recipients of the letter that is passed on down to other churches and on down to us as well. These churches are primarily founded as a result of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. A little bit of history there. Ephesus being the key church, and from there the word of God spread out and no doubt being responsible for the churches surrounding Asia Minor. Now, look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, that's God. And we know that. Uh, God's eternal presence is not limited by time. The eternal God who was and who is and who is yet to, in the future to come, uh, that is who he is uh, greeting and sending uh, and dedicating this book to. And from, it says, uh, the seven spirits, or the sevenfold spirit before the throne. It says seven spirits, so we won't, don't, don't become confused. That's the sevenfold Holy Spirit. All right. And if you were to turn, and you can make this note in your Bible, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, uh, you would be able to, if you turned there and read that, uh, you would find there seven unique ministries of the Holy Spirit. And uh, he is therefore the sevenfold spirit. Uh, Zechariah refers to the lampstand in the temple as the spirit. And so it has seven lights as well. And so uh, a sevenfold spirit speaks of the fullness of his ministry, the seven spirits before the throne. Now, just as a little footnote, um, this word, the number seven occurs 54 times in this book. It occurs here more uh, than any other book. Number seven is associated with completion, with fulfillment, with perfection. You can find that in these passages, Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, Exodus chapter 20, verse 10, Leviticus 14, verse 7, Acts chapter 6, verse 3, and many, many other places uh, that would tell you, Genesis 2, 2, Exodus 20, 10, Leviticus 14, 7, Acts 6, 3, that help us understand that seven is a number of completion. It is a real number. It also gives us an understanding of what is intended. In Revelation, there are seven churches and there are seven spirits. That's in chapter 1, verse 4. There are seven lampstands, chapter 1, verse 12. Seven stars, chapter 1, verse 16. Seven seals on the scroll, chapter 5, verse 1. Seven horns and seven eyes of the Lamb, chapter 5, verse 6. Seven angels and seven trumpets in chapter 8, verse 2. Seven thunders, chapter 10, verse 3. Seven heads of the dragon, chapter 12, verse 3. Seven heads of the beast, Chapter 13, verse 1, seven golden bowls. Chapter 15, verse 7, and seven kings. Chapter 17, verse 10. So that number is used often, and we understand what it means because we can compare Scripture with Scripture. We understand what's intended, and it is a real number as well. Even though it's symbolically used for completion, we also need to look at the way John would have looked at it. When it says seven, it is seven. And I think as we work our way through this book, we need to be careful to take that and do the very same things that I'm doing here uh, with the rest of this uh, as the Lord reveals this to us and we explain it, all right? It's easy, uh, I think, through the years, people say, well, John couldn't have known uh, what uh, he was talking about. He was only using the vocabulary for the day, so we'll equal locusts to helicopters and we'll do all this. And I think we need to be careful about doing any of that, okay? We just take the book like the book says. If it says that locusts are going to stream out of a pit and they're going to be clothed like they're going to be clothed, that's exactly what's going to happen. And we can be sure because this is the Lord's word and he doesn't make any mistakes and it's been tried. So that's kind of how we're going to approach it. We understand what's being said and we understand that some things are symbolic and we understand that in this context, comparing scripture with scripture, we can come to a right conclusion. All right. So this is a book sent with greetings from God the Father and greetings from the Holy Spirit. And that's amazing, too. And then verse five says, and from Jesus Christ. So it's a letter from the Trinity, which 
also sets it apart in a real marvelous way uh, from uh, other books in the Bible, a letter from the Trinity as being part of its writing. And then as it's as a revelation of Jesus Christ, it goes on to describe Jesus as the first begotten of the dead. Look at, look at verse 5, if you would. And these are just amazing descriptions, and you can just relish in this. This is marvelous stuff. Verse 5. <clears throat> and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness and firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Isn't that great? That's worth rereading, isn't it, beloved? That's a great definition of Jesus. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. So it's a letter from the Trinity, and uh, it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It describes him. Now, when it says that he's the first, f- firstborn of the dead, it doesn't mean he was the first one who ever rose from the dead. We know that, don't we? Because Jesus himself raised others from the dead. It just means, and you can just write this down if you want, that of all those ever to be raised from the dead, including all the saints, he is the first, he is the foremost, he is the chief, he's the greatest one of all who will ever rise. That's what that means. A firstborn of the dead just means that he's the best. He's the top. He's the, he's the number one, the greatest one. And may I add that everyone who has ever lived and every man and woman who will ever live will also rise from the dead. That is very clear teaching from the Word of God. Some to the resurrection of life and some to the resurrection of damnation. But everyone, without any exception, will be raised. And of all who have ever been raised and who will be raised, he then is the chief one. Now look at the last part of verse 5. He is the ruler of all the kings of the earth. Now here's a dedication. A book's from the Trinity. It is to Jesus by an angel through John, written down, sent to the seven churches, passed on for us to read. And it's dedicated, look at verse 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by the shedding of his own blood. Dedication is to Jesus Christ himself. Look at verse 6. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's dedicated to the glory of the eternal Christ. Verse 7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. You know what that verse, what amen means? Two verses, amen, back to back. What's it mean? Say it again. I couldn't hear you. So be it. That's right. And so be it. And that's great, isn't it? He says it two times, back to back. He's made us to be a kingdom priest to God and God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And He's done that for us. So be it. And let's be that, right? Let's do it. Behold, He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him and all the tribes of earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. So be it. Let it happen. And so we look forward to those things. And uh, we look forward to being those things. And uh, as it says that he, um, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. It's not just talking about the Roman soldiers. In fact, that's really not the focus. Uh, Zechariah tells us really the ones who would pierce him would be the Jews, and particularly those who would live uh, there at that time. And so even those who pierced him will see him, and so let it be. That's the kind of glimpse of what this book is about. It's the book of the coming, of the revealing of Jesus Christ, of things we wouldn't know if we hadn't read this book. It's about the glory and honor that belong to the Lamb 
and so we're looking towards that. Now, look, look at verse 8, if you would. I'm the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That signifies, of course, God in his essence and Christ in his unique relationship to God within the Trinity. And so we find in verses 4 through 8 just some introductory information. The books from the Trinity to the seven churches to be spread from there by the agency of John. And we see it's dedicated to Jesus who is coming, who is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. In other words, this one who comes is none other than Almighty God. And so we have a beautiful description of that for us. So the book then is about the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's about his return and about the facts that are going to occur around that return. And so now we've established then that the theme of verse first eight verses in chapter one is Jesus Christ and his second coming. Now let's look at verse nine and it gets into his first of his visions. And it is a series of visions that God gives to John. Verse nine says, it starts out with, I, John. Now uh, he says a lot uh, of that phrase in this book. He says that, it refers to him, I, John, a lot. And it's almost as if he's in a state of shock and you can kind of get the, the feel of that. Uh, it's almost as if he's saying, can you believe this? It's me, John, and I got, to, I got to see this. This is something, you know, the Lord revealed to me. He's kind of incredulous that God would ever allow him such a privilege. Look at verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus Christ, was on the island of Patmos. This is me, and I got to be here. And that John was on Patmos, we know historically, because he had been exiled there for the proclamation of the gospel. He was arrested in Ephesus, so... In order to shut him up and get him out of the mainstream, they put him there to die. Eusebius, an early Christian historian, says that the Emperor Nerva actually released him from there in 98 A.D. This book, in particular, was written uh, in between 94 and 96 A.D. And you kind of wonder if the Lord didn't just put him there on Patmos just for that short time, just for the writing and the penning of this book, and uh, to take an opportunity to have John's ear for a short time. Now look back at verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and, and kingdom and patience and endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He just says, that's why I was there. He was put there because I preached Christ. I preached God's word. Now look at verse 10. I was in the spirit, he says, on the Lord's day. That's it. He was in control of the Holy Spirit in a unique way on the Lord's day. Now, some people say that... Um, uh, this was on Sunday. I tend to agree with that. I think it was uh, the Lord's Day that was celebrated after the Lord's resurrection, so they celebrated on Sunday. Some people think that means in a prophetic sense that uh, I was in the Spirit looking at the mighty day of the Lord in all its fullness. I think that reads way too much into it. I think a very simple reading and approach. John just said, look, I'm here. I'm in Patmos. It's the Lord's Day. I'm in the Spirit. I'm worshiping, and the Lord does this. And I think that that's the way we should, uh, we should think about that. Now look at verse uh, 10 again. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, I heard behind me a great voice, that's a loud voice, like a trumpet. So here is uh, John's orders. Uh, write this stuff down. Here's what he says, verse 11. Write on the scroll what you see, send it to the seven churches. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, uh, you're to write. Verse 10, let's see, verse 11. <clears throat> write in the book what you see, send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna and to Pergamus and uh, Pergamum and to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Actual cities actually existed. They had churches, local congregations. We'll look at them specifically in chapters two and three and their uh, things about them. But now John turns in his first vision and he has a vision 
of Jesus himself. Let's look at verses 12 through 16. We'll go back and comment on it. We need to read it in a whole. It's just beautiful. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool and like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. That's an amazing appearance of Christ, isn't it? And he just describes as he looks at this uh, uh, Christ standing before him, he sees what he sees, and he just describes that for us. And I think our own imagination as we think about John's descriptive words uh, line up very well with that. Very straightforward. A marvelous thought. John sees Christ moving among the seven golden lampstands, and each lampstand represents a church, and we're going to see that as we compare Scripture with Scripture. And uh, seven is its number of fullness, and what we have here is a representation of all churches for all times, as I've told you before. Christ is moving among the churches, ministering uh, to the churches. Isn't that marvelous? And we'll talk just, I want to comment on that in just a minute. But uh, he holds, verse 16 tells us in his right hand, uh, seven stars. Now it tells us in verse 20, uh, that the seven stars are the ministers or the messengers, agaloi of the church. Now, that word is for angels, but we, as you study, uh, uh, do the study of angels, you understand that many times words that, rep- that uh, describe angels, many times God uses them to describe men who do his work, uh, those who are his messengers and carry off his work. And so he describes them as the seven ministers or messengers of the church, and uh, they're not in charge, angels we know are not in charge of the church, uh, elders are, and so they are the messengers, are the ones who give out the message and guide the church. But it is the Lord then moving through his church, ministering and trimming the lamps and doing his work of purification and doing his work of judgment and applying wisdom and so forth. And he sees Christ in his glory ministering to the church. And if we just kind of pause on that, and I think meditate on that for a minute, I think it's important. You realize that this is an ongoing ministry of Christ and has been since the church was established. A marvelous thought that he moves through and he trims lamps and he uh, works in judgment and sometimes puts them out. And you just you realize that uh, there are many denominations. And as you think about the things that are taught, I was thinking about this the other day, and uh, things that you know uh, doctrinally would not be true, but really believers still come to faith. How do, people co- how do people come to faith? They come to faith because faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the Word of God. So even in churches that we would look at and say, uh, those churches are cold, those churches have, have begun to die, you realize still that the church is Christ's passion that he came to set it up and establish it, that he works inside the church and he trims and he does whatever he pleases. And what my concern needs to be, and it was, that was my focus in my meditation during that time, is what's going on here, right? In the church where I am a minister and where you are ministers and what we do. And we line up then with what Christ wants us to do and not worry about so much all the other things. You don't hear me criticizing other denominations too much. I criticize ones that aren't born again. I'll pick on the Catholic Church because that's, I think, twice did faith. Uh, dead in your faith and dead in your sin. They don't teach a gospel that saves, so you don't have people coming to faith there uh, because you're not going to hear the word in the gospel. But you do, I don't pick on other denominations too much because I, as I look at this and I realize these churches belong to Christ and he does the ministering and he works among them 
And as we met this morning and as we meet tonight and as you go home, the church is you realize and he wants to minister. He wants to trim. He wants to uh, make us bright. He wants us to do the things he desires for us to do in his word. And that's his job. And we want to be those types of people who are conforming to what he says in the word and being the type of church that he can bless. And he can make the light bright. He can trim and he can and put it as he wants. All right. And so Christ does that. It's a continuing ministry of the church. It's a marvelous thought. We're going to look more at it as we get further in. Look at verses 17 and 18. We're going to wrap up for tonight. We're about out of time. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And that probably, that probably describes what most of us would do in that precise uh, time, right? If uh, in a real sense we turned around and saw this uh, Christ, uh, the Christ standing before us in all his marvelous glory. We're look, used to seeing pictures that men draw of uh, Christ uh, on the cross and Christ in humiliated form and the passion of the Christ and all those types of things where our heart is broken for uh, his broken body for our own sin. This is Christ in power. This is Christ in glory. The Christ that will always be from now on because he's going to be revealed in all his glory and power. Verse 18. Uh, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man and he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. That's marvelous, isn't it? What great language that is. Don't be afraid, John. This is me, and I was dead, and I'm alive again, and I have the right to rule, and uh, I have the keys for death and Hades. You know, lots of people have seen God's glory in Scripture that's recorded for us. John got to see it. Some other guys got to see it too. Isaiah saw God's glory. His response, woe unto me, for I am what? Undone. Yeah, and I'm a man of unclean lips. And I'm undone. I'm ruined. Paul saw God's glory. What happened? Blinded on the Damascus road. Couldn't see for three days. Job saw God's glory. What did he do? Repented in sackcloth and ashes. Peter saw God's glory. What did he say? Get away from me, Lord, for I am a, I'm a sinful man. John saw God's glory. What's it say? I fell at his feet as though I was dead. Kind of uh, belies a casual acquaintance that we have with our Lord, doesn't it? He introduces us really to the outline of the book now, verse 19. And uh, with this we'll close. He says this. After he encourages John, he, he uh, puts his hand on him and encourages him, strengthens him, tells him not to be afraid. He's got a job for him to do. Verse 19, he says, Therefore, Write the things which you've seen and the things which are and the things which will also take place after these things. He tells uh, John, this is, really gives us the outline, write therefore what you've seen and what was that. Uh, that's just that first vision. John, write down that you've seen me. Write down this vision of me that you just saw and uh, what is now and the things that are now. That's the time that John lives. Uh, present tense types of things. Uh, those uh, Things will be what we're going to see in chapter 2 and 3, uh, the church and the different types of churches and what's going on there. Write those down. And, uh, and then he says, and what will take place later. And those things are going to come in chapter 4 and following. So there you have an outline of the book, right? And the introduction. Chapter 1 has dealt with the things that he's seen. Chapter 2 and 3, the things which are. And John's going to write those things down. And chapter 4 through 22, the things that shall be hereafter. So you deal with past vision present issues, and the future. That's what we're going to do. And that's what uh, the Lord tells John is going to be uh, his job for this writing. All right? Amen?
Now you get the kind of the sense of what we're going to do and kind of the comments we'll make. Sometimes we'll make more uh, if it warrants. You certainly could go and take uh, in 22 chapters and we could take, you know, uh, three years and go through this. Uh, we will not do that. We'll do an acquaintance for you, a tour through the book. You become familiar with it. And, uh, and I will encourage you then to continue to study it. And uh, we'll follow up this study, Lord willing, with a study in Daniel, which will even further enrich your understanding of the chronology of all these things and things the Lord has prepared for us. I love it. Father, we thank you for an opportunity today to be in your house and to be with your people and to be in your word and to enjoy uh, the time that we can read it and study it and to be enriched by it. Lord, continue. Help us to continue to be those who uh, do not forsake the assembling together, but uh, all the more as we see the day approaching. We know that uh, if it was the fullness of time when your son came, how much further uh, down the line are we and more, uh, much more closer to uh, his return? Catching away of the church to the beginning of the tribulation period. And so, Lord Father, we look forward to these things and we look forward to reading this uh, book. I pray that you'll enrich our understanding greatly. And Lord, we thank you for the blessings you promised just by the hearing and the reading and the doing of the things that are found in here. So help us to live like people who know the end of the story. And uh, be bold and courageous to do the things you've asked us to do. We give you praise today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you guys. Good to see you tonight. Have a great week. See you on Wednesday.